Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. We still continue in the First Kings. It's actually on our sign outside, and we're going to be picking up First Corinthians coming up this Sunday afternoon. Of course, of course, we'll be in uh, Luke coming up Sunday morning. But we're still in First Kings. We got about three or four chapters left in First Kings, and then I'm not good at math, but I know Second Kings comes after First Kings. Yeah, there you go. I'm getting it, Dan. I'm trying to learn my numbers. All right, but we're looking in chapter number twenty tonight. The last time we were together, we saw that Elijah goes and throws his mantle on. Elisha. We saw how the mantle being the, the anointing and Elijah basically said, here's the, here's the calling. Go ahead and do what you want. He basically walks away. Elisha will have to go back to his family and we saw the, the, the encouragement of coming from a godly family that encourages you to go into ministry. I know everybody didn't have that, but let it fall on the ears of grandmothers and grandfathers, aunts and uncles and daddies and mamas. Let it follow your ear. If somebody wants to aspire to go into the ministry, you, you could do your best to talk them out of it. But like Jeremiah said, it's a fire in my bones. Amen. Why don't you be the one to encourage them to go into ministry and not be the reason they quit? Come on. Amen. With that being said, Elisha goes into the ministry and now it's almost as if chapter 20 is dropped here in the middle of the narrative between Elijah and Elisha. Ahab is still in the forefront of the story, but in chapter number 20, we see in chapter number 20 how God deals with nations. Uh, uh, we understand that Israel is still considered uh, the, the nation that belongs unto the Lord. For God still says, I am the God of Israel. Even though the northern nation, the northern tribes, the ten tribes that broke away from the twelve, and now the southern tribes are faithful to the, the, the line of David, the northern tribes, who has gone through many dynasty turnovers, God still considers them His people. They're just apostate. They're lost, but they're the lost sheep of Israel. But God, who is our shepherd, the one who seeks, is seeking them, and He deals with them in chapter number 20. If you got a copy of God's Word, I do hope and encourage you to turn there and look at 1 Kings chapter 20. If you remember Benahad, he was the king that was uh, who was set up in uh, because of the sin of Solomon, uh, because of the breakaway. God broke up in the Syrian nation. He broke up a king. He brought a king because of the sin of uh, Solomon. God rose up uh, adversaries for Solomon, and this is Benahad who became the king of Aram or Syria. He goes there, and actually, there's a trade deal that takes place back in chapter ten of First Kings. Solomon actually trades him horses. And later, generations later, now we see that the benefit of his sin has now took a full tidal wave and collapsed on the nation of Israel. That's why granddaddy's sin collapsed on us. That's why we have to deal with generational sins. Don't look at me sideways like you don't know what I'm talking about. That great-great-granddaddy was, was an, an alcoholic and you had to deal with that all your life. Or great-grandma, was a, she was just mad all the time. She had a fire tongue and, she, and it seems like it passed on from generation to generation. Uh, the thing is that holiness is not is something that you inherit. It's something that you find in the presence of God. But this meanness is all me. And it's also in my bloodline. This lightning in my veins, this anger, this melancholy, it's all me. My addictive personality. My, my downcast looking at all the bad stuff. That's, that's all me. Like Paul said, if anything's in me, it comes from the Lord. So we see that Solomon's sin, and now we still deal with the repercussions. Let, let's think about that for a moment. 
whatever we sin, we like to think, I ain't hurting nobody else. It's all me. I'm just doing this. I'm on an island all by myself. That's not true at all. It affects everybody around you. It affects your community. It affects your family. It affects this church. It affects the nation. Because you drop one pebble in a steel lake, it was saying repercussions that go on for generations. Some of us are still dealing with the repercussions of generational curses and sins that were done decades, uh, many, many years ago. We're still dealing with it. But thanks be to God, we serve a God who's the God of the living, who forgives sins and shows grace. We see that here in chapter number 20. With that being said, the introduction of Behedadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. He also, let us not forget Asa. Remember we spoke of Asa who trusted God, but in his old age, he turned from God. He actually put people in the stocks, which is an old phrase of saying he arrested the prophets of God because they corrected him. At this point, Asa bribed Abinahad to go and make war with the northern nations instead of trusting in God in the issue of the war that he was going through at the time. That's just a reminder of where we are now. 32 kings were with him. We see in verse number one and horses and chariots and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it now 32 kings is a lot of kings it's probably possible that there were clans and there were local clans and tribesmen but there were 32 that were now under the king of Syria in verse number two and he sent messengers into the city of Ahab the king of Israel and said to him thus says Ben-Hanadad Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and your children are mine. Isn't it quite obvious that the enemy always sends a message? Maybe you've received the message. Oh, I'm coming for you. The war hadn't even started. There's not an arrow that's been shot. But really, many times we crumble under that pressure. We look, we look at the statistics. We say, well, 50% of marriages end in divorce. We look at the statistics and we say, well, what are my chances of even making it? And we crumble. We fall apart. Well, look at my history and my family. Look at how everybody else turned out. What are my chances of ever digging out of this pit? Before an arrow even flies, we hear the slither of the snake come up and curl around our neck and whisper in our ears with its forked tongue. And it don't tickle. It hurts. Here already, the king, it's hard. I'm going to be honest with you. It's hard as we look at Ahab here. It's hard to feel sorry for him because we know how Ahab is. We, everybody knows how Ahab is. Come on, we, let's be honest. But I can't help, to, can't help to relate to Ahab because your preacher ain't always, well, I sure ain't an angel now, but I ain't always been a saint. I, I've been an ain't. But then again, then again my God is faithful, Amen. even if I'm not. Amen. Ahab here, he says, whenever he hears that his gold and his best wives and his children are mine. Whenever somebody threatens your family, you will think, no, you ain't going to hurt my family. You can hurt me all day, but not my family. And the king of Israel answered, as you say, my Lord, O king, I'm yours and all that I have. He rolls over with a yellow belly. He literally says, okay, come on in. You would you 32 clansmen. Come in with all your kings. Take it all. He literally gives up. Who's, whose life is on the line here? Well, there's Jezebel. Even though we know but Jezebel. Yeah, I know it's hard to feel sorry for Jezebel. But Jezebel, she's known for iniquity and evil. However, he mentions her. He says, I'm going to take your best wife and I'm going to take all your children. And Ahab says, okay. 
does Ahab roll over so easy? Didn't at Mount Carmel, the greatest miracle that we read in the Old Testament, when fire comes down and consumes an altar and they proclaim that God is the Lord, that He is God, there is no other God. You would think Ahab said, okay, let me ask the Lord if this is all going to be true or am I going down? No, because Ahab did not have a personal revival. He didn't have a personal stake in the game. He didn't know God personally. It was only public. He was only at the public service. He was only there worshiping God in the public, but privately he was wasn't adhering to God. He wasn't in personal repentance. He wasn't serving God personally. So in private, he failed. So he falls in public. That's how it works. People always fall in private long before they fall in public. So let that be said. Even if you're not a a preacher, you're a reacher. Even if you ain't a leader, you're a pleader. Let it be known that if you're slack on your Bible... Reading. If you're slack on your praying, because which is more important, breathing in or breathing out, they're both essential in a healthy life and a healthy body. As much as it is, is in a Christian who lives and walks and talks with God, he speaks to us through the text and, and we breathe out by praying to him. Communication that continues. If you take a part of your body and you cut off the circulation where you wrap a, some strong rope or twine around your arm, it'll turn blue. And if you don't get blood to it quick enough, it's going to die. It's true. Also in you, communication with the Lord. Ahab didn't have that. He only did it publicly. He was only there whenever they killed the, the prophets and he was like, okay, yeah, the, the Lord is the Lord. I mean, I saw the fireballs like you did. Went back and told Jezebel. She threatened Elijah. And we spoke about that last time we were together. But as we see here, he rolls over quite so easy. He has a wishbone there where his backbone should be. Your silver and your gold are mine. I'm taking your wealth. I'm taking your wife. I'm taking your children. They're mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours. And all that I have. Far too long, people in our generation, in our culture, do the same thing to the enemies of God. That sure, okay, you can have my future. You can have my children. You'd stake claim over them. Okay, well you can have because I don't have any fight in me. I, I sold myself over to the merciless. When I'm in the dark and I'm alone, I give myself over to evil anyway, so why shouldn't it conquer me and everything I have? Mm, mighty quiet. In verse 5, the messengers came again and said, Thus says Dinadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time and they shall search your house and your houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. First he said, alright, you got to deliver it. Put it outside the gate. I want everything that you like. Okay, sure, whatever you say. No, 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 no. Now I'm going to go in your house. I'm going to take everything that you have pleasure in, anything that you love. I'm just going to take it. Now we see that Ahab says, oh, wait a minute, you, you mean you can walk right in my house? In verse number 7, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. He said to the messengers of Behadinadad, 
Tell my Lord the King all that you first demand of your servant I was willing to do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers went departed and brought him word again. Far too long we've opened the front doors to our houses and allowed the enemy just walk in and take whatever you want. Why do we do that? Because there ain't no fight in us. We don't believe it's worth fighting for. Must must be. Here he's saying, okay, no, 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 you just, you're not going to do that. Let me, let me have the council, the, the princes of Israel come together. He says, don't, don't just roll over that way. Fight for what you love. The Spartans who are renowned through history, they would kiss their wives on the cheek as they would go to war. The wives would tell the Spartan warrior, come back with your shield or on your shield. That means you fight to the death. And when you're fighting, look back over your shoulder and see who you're fighting for. You fight to protect your house and your territory, your family, your people. You fight for them tooth and nail. Whoever needs to hear tonight, continue fighting. Oh, you can get weary, but the Bible even tells us that He will cause you to mount up on eagle's wings. Even though your knees will buckle, even though you're tired, trust in Him. Even though we learn Sunday night, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and places of darkness and high places. But our, our weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Our weapons are spiritual. Amen. Amen. You should have been here if you missed it. Amen. And we see here, that he's starting to start trouble. In the original, in the original Hebrew, that he doesn't even call him a man. He says, this. This is starting to trouble. He, didn't, he, he humiliates Behenadad when he mentions it to the princes because he, he don't even want, he don't want to humanize him at all because what he's doing is outside of humanism. It's actually something that's wicked as he comes in and wants to ransack the house of Ahab. And he said to the messengers, go and tell them what we said. And now we see uh, verse 10, at the end of that sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria fall shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. He's saying, I, I got a big army. That's what he's saying. If you want to put it in Grantham or Princeton to basically understand what he's saying. I got a lot of people that's coming with me. And he swears by the gods. He don't swear by Jehovah. He don't swear by, he don't swear by his, uh, uh, his own God. He don't name the one God. He has a plurithal of many gods. He was a pluralist. He had many gods, much like Americans do today. We have a God of com- convenience. We have a God of uh, comfort. We have a God of entertainment. And, and we do whatever we can. We even tithe to them. We serve them. We don't want anybody messing with them. And you call them out. We even have a God of sexuality. We have a God of identity. And our favorite gods are ourselves. Amen. We see here the gods do so to me and more. Don't y'all remember that phrase whenever Jezebel said it? Here Abinadad says the same thing. He swears that these false gods would do something to him. If you remember, Jezebel said, Elijah, I, I swear by my God, Murdoch uh, or Baal, he had many names. I swear by these gods, if I don't kill you like you killed those, those high priests on that day. If you remember, uh, Baal and those, those gods could not even save the high priests. So why would Elijah get shook to the core? It's weird how we run from things that really can't even hurt us. Maybe it's because we serve such a little God. If you quake in your boots and you're worried and you are full of anxiety, you have every right to be if your God is small. But if your God is mighty and hangs the earth upon nothing and tilts the earth at a 15 degree angle, then 
What are you worried about? For our God reigns. We see here, tell him, verse 13, no, verse 11, And the king of all Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Ahab all of a sudden get a little, little mouthy on him. How about that? Maybe it's because he found out that the rest of the tribes don't want them to be ransacked. Maybe some of the other tribes were part uh, of the, the, the revival that took place. Ahab personally wasn't involved. In fact, we'll see in the next chapter, his personal life is a little wicked and Jezebel as well as they'll do deceptive things to get ahead in life. But here, but maybe the rest of the tribe came together and had strong backbones and had morals because the revival that Elijah took place at Mount Carmel. For they said that Yahweh is the Lord, being the Old Testament name of God of Scripture. So now he says, don't talk trash before you strap on your armor. When Abinadab had heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take up your positions. And they took their positions against the city. In verse number 12, we see Abinadad is drinking in the booths. Now, we, we have booths in our day and time. We go in and we vote in them. That's about all I can think about a booth. But what you need to understand here, a booth is, is a tent. He was getting drunk in the tent. He was getting lit. He was getting slizzered and sloshed, uh, if you uh, could relate to all those. He was getting drunk off his stump. And he tells, his, he tells his men to take up their positions. And verse 13, And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, the king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. And you will know that I am the Lord. I want you to focus in verse 13 just for a moment because Ahab killed all the prophets, if you remember. He was hunting down the prophets of the Lord. Jezebel had him slaughtered. But now this man who comes, he, he comes from the, the, the school that took place because after Mount Carmel, there was a little lapse before this part of the story. There was a, it's called the sons of the prophets. We read about it later in 2 Kings whenever Elisha is there. And you remember the story where somebody loses a, an axe head or a hammer and it falls in the bottom of a, a brook and he throws twigs and it floats again. Here we see that one of those prophets, he's unnamed. We don't know who he is. But he's used by God and he comes to Ahab, the very man who wanted to kill him and his people. To really wrap your head around this, I, I want to use an example for Saul, who was Paul in, in the New Testament. He was going around to churches and killing people. He would actually drag people out of homes and have them arrested for believing in Jesus, if you remember. But however, on the road to Damascus, uh, God knocked him off his high horse and converted him and changed him. However, there was a time before he was converted, uh, before he was converted, where he killed people, had them arrested, had them executed for believing in Jesus. But once he was converted, he later would be martyred and he would die for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So imagine this moment as he walks through the gates of heaven. As he's greeted by the same people who he had executed. Do you think they sneered at him? Said, oh, I can't believe you're here. No. They opened their arms and greeted him. Said, welcome, brother. Welcome home. Welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Amen. Hey, man, that's so good to me. He was greeted by the people he arrested and people he persecuted. Amen. That's true of Jesus and us. 
We persecuted him. He stretched out his arms and he welcomes us in. I want to just reiterate here. Why don't you forgive? Let me reiterate again. Why don't you forgive? Why don't you forgive like Jesus forgives? Why ain't God? So what you're saying when somebody offends you and hurts you, that God commands you to forgive, but you don't. So you're saying, I'm bigger than God. I hold a grudge. You're supposed to give forgiveness, not hold a grudge. Amen. Here we see that this prophet, whoever he was, wasn't holding a grudge against Ahab. Just because they have a different skin color than you. And you hold a grudge because when you were younger, somebody did something. Or just because they, they come from a different part of town. Or they, they have a different last name than you, Hatfields and McCoys. Whatever. You still hold the, the grudge against them. But we see that Jesus forgives and He calls us to forgive. Forgiving people always forgive. We are the forgiving people. That's what we do. We're the Christians. We're the little Christ. That's what it says to be in the image of little Christian, little Christ. Christians, we're followers of Jesus. He forgives, so we forgive. See, the problem is we don't know how to forgive. We don't know how to put up boundaries once we forgive. Maybe they abuse you, hurt you. Well, what do we do? Do we allow them to come in the front door and do that all over again? No, that's a different sermon. But I want to let you know, let's begin with the forgiving. Begin there. Then establish boundaries. We can do that later. But let's begin with the forgiving. Some of y'all are carrying around corpses on your back. What do you mean, preacher? In Roman times, whenever someone was guilty of murdering somebody, they would tie the corpse of the person on the back of the person who murdered them. That's how they would stay execute them. So they would walk around with the, the dead person on their back. And over time, the rigor mortis and the juices of that dead person would infect the living. And eventually they would die. And that's true of those who are carrying grudges today. You're carrying corpses of dead people on your back. And it has infected you in every area of life. Don't lie. It has. You have trust issues. You just can't forgive. Let's forgive tonight. Let's begin to forgive. How do you do that? Start praying for them. What if they're past? Well, you ask God for the healing. I know it says that time heals all things. Well, you know, when time is involved with a wound, it causes it to be infected if it is not treated. Amen. It actually will swell. It actually puss over. It actually will be almost detrimental where you would die from it. And that's true of unforgiveness tonight. Whoever needs to hear this, this isn't even in the notes. You just need to hear it. Forgive. God, heal me. Help me to forgive. If they're alive, God, bless them if you have to pray through your teeth. But God, find me the strength to forgive them. If you don't have it in you, guess what? He'll give it to you. The ability to give it to you. He called Lazarus out of the tomb. If you don't have it in you to forgive, don't worry. He has vaults of forgiveness that He'll give you to be able to forgive. And to put into light, help you to understand completely, if God has forgiven you of much... You should forgive other people as nearly not even half as much because you can't offend, offend God. You couldn't offend them as much as you've offended God. Amen. So we continue here. The prophet comes and he tells the, the murderer Ahab, I will give it all into your hand this day, is what the Lord says, and I am the Lord. So in verse 14, Ahab said, By whom? Who's going to do this? How are you going to do it? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, 
Who shall lead the battle? And He answered you. Many times God uses common means to do supernatural things. For an example, our friend Eddie's going out and he's handing out food to people who probably pray for a meal. And oh, it didn't come down from a cloud. So there's somebody who actually purchased the food or was given the food, who made the sandwiches, but by the means of natural means, God does supernatural things. Well, our food pantry is running. Somebody's coming, they can't afford groceries. By, by natural means, by the love of a, a local church and a food pantry, people are getting fed. Somebody needs hope today, so by natural means, they'll load up a, 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 an episode of At the River or listen to a podcast. Natural means of somebody one-on-one just speaking to them and checking on them, how are you doing? And that might be the healing word they need to put the gun down for a moment and not think about blowing their own brains out. Amen. Yes, we read about God dropping the manna into wilderness. We drew, do see how He miraculously caused water to fall, flow out of a stone. But mostly... God uses natural means to help people. And that's what He says here. I'm not going to send angel armies to fight the battle for you. Many times, I know you're praying for that lost loved one. But sometimes you've got to put legs on your own prayers. Amen. It's like leaning against a shovel while you're praying for a hole. Come on. Share the gospel with them. Let them know you're praying for them. Lay hands on them and pray for them. Natural, regular, ordinary means. Ordinary means look like this. Men who lead their household well get up every day and go to work providing for their family. Ordinary means look like this. Wives who love their husbands and respect them. Ordinary means look like children respecting their mother and their father in obedience as unto the Lord. Ordinary means. And God gets the ultimate glory in it all. Amen. So he says, who's going to lead? He says, you. And he mustered the servants of the governors of the district, and they were 232. That ain't very big. Come to think of it, that's not a lot at all. And after he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Okay, now now we're talking about some numbers now. Maybe he can do some damage. And they went out at noon while Benadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. And he and the 32 kings also helped him. Notice they helped him not to win the battle. They helped him get drunk. Helped him get drunker. I guess it kind of matters who you hang out with. Isn't it strange how whenever we do something, we don't usually do it alone. Whether we're destroying ourselves, we always want to cry out, Hey, I'm going to kill myself by just pulling this bottle to my head and pulling the trigger every day until I, I, I poison myself into an early grave. Come on with me. We usually want to do it in a group. Christian, that should also resonate in your soul. Hey, I'm going to serve the Lord. Why don't you come with me? Serve with me. Here we see that they all helped him. Later on, we'll see that he'll use this as an excuse. We see in verse 17, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first and Abinadad sent out scouts and they reported to him, men are coming from Samaria. And he said, if they have come for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. He is very overconfident. He says, no matter what happens, take them alive. I don't care if they want to kill us or if they're trying to make peace, just take them alive. 
And verse number 19. So these went out of the city and the servants of the governors and the districts and the army followed him. And each struck down his man. In verse 20 we see that each man had a position to play in the war. They knew what they were supposed to do. It was their man. It was their opposition. That means I can't fight your battles for you. I can't do what, I can't deal with your demons at work. I can't go deal with that co-worker that just is a uh, militant atheist or just hates you. I, that's not my position. That's your position. I'm not supposed to go to your house and read the Bible to your children. That's your job. I, I'm not supposed to go witness to your neighbor. That's what you're supposed to do. Come on. Each man his man. He, that's, that means there's responsibility not only here in this army, but also in the army of Christ, the body of Christ, the church. You have a responsibility in your world to go into your world and preach the gospel to every creature, every person, people hiding under rocks. That's your responsibility. Come on. The Bible says that the preacher is supposed to stir you up for the equipping of the saints for ministry. That's what I'm doing. Amen. He, he said that the army followed him. They, they each man struck down his man. And the Syrians fled. Israel pursued them. But Hinnadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse. And the horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well that you have to do for the spring of the king of Syria will come up against you. What the prophet is saying, oh, he's going to be back. He, he's coming back. There, there's going to be a round two. For far too long, we, 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 we just think that when sin rears its ugly head, that's a one and done. No, the devil, while we, even the Bible says that when the Satan came to Jesus, he left him as he, he rebuked him and he came back at a more importune time. He wanted to, he calculated and it was the moment at Gethsemane when he was there praying, not my will, but your will be done. Amen. The battle is not over. So I don't know why you put your feet up like it is. I don't know why you will fold your hands and cruise this thing on into eternity. You will fight until you lay your head down in the dust and you see your master face to face. Amen. Here we see that the prophet came and said he'll be back. He says fortify everything. Get ready. For in the spring there's a bountiful uh, more crops as the weather is more, more pleasing. And, and that's the time when the kings will go up for war. And verse 23, in the service of the king of Syria said to him... Their gods are gods of the hills. And they are stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. Surely, surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, do this, remove the kings each from his posts and the commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we will... Be stronger than they. And they listened to their voice and did so. Here I want to let you know that, uh, uh, that, that, that the chariots were useless as they fought on the hills of Israel. For you can't get up a dollar speed or use a chariot on craggly, craggly mountains. So they're saying that he's only the God of the mountaintop. Not the God of the plains and the valleys. Every Christian here knows that's ridiculous to say that he's not God in the valley. Amen. For that's where you find the sweetest presence of God in the lily in the valley. 
Amen. The dark places, you know that He's with you. In fact, the valleys have done more for Christians than mountaintop experiences. Amen. Think about the, the revivals you've been to where you stand there and you cry, thank you, Jesus, and you just worship Him. Those are good. I'm not discrediting those things and those moments. But it's when you were in the valley you found out He sticks closer than a brother. It was in the valley you found out that He's a comforter to the afflicted. It was in the valley where your mind was falling apart. You found out that He tethers you together piece by piece. Like a mosaic or stained glass window. Those are all individual glass that He put together to make something beautiful. He's the God of the mountaintop and the valleys. But Abinadad is going to find out. Maybe people say that about you. You only serve God in the good times when you got gas in the car. You only serve God in the good times when your body's working right. You only serve God on the mountaintops whenever things are going good. But when you get in that valley, He ain't your God no more. You're scrimping and scraping. You're lying. You're scheming. You've got to manipulate things to make things happen. You just don't trust God in the valleys. Is that you? Does that describe you? When the pressure's on. When the unemployment line seems to get longer and longer, the check ain't in the mail, the debt's owed. When the car don't crank. When the baby's coughing in the middle of the night. When your dog's throwing up on the carpet and it don't look right, somebody's off there. When your chickens ain't laying eggs. When it looks like the government's overreaching. When it looks like you might end up in jail because of your beliefs in Jesus Christ. Is God still God? Is He God only on the mountaintop or is He still God in the valley? I mean, I could preach this, but we got more to get to. In the spring, Abinadad mustered the Syrians up and they went up to Aflat. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it says. To fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and they were provisioned and went against them. And the people of Israel camped before them like two little flocks. Basically, to believe here is to help you understand, they were outnumbered yet again. In verse 28, And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this multitude in your hands, and you shall know that I am the Lord. He's telling Ahab, you're going to know that I'm God. Basically, you're outnumbered. In fact, they got chariots this time and you're in the valley and strategically you're going to lose. But God says, I'm going to give them into your hand. And they encamped against opposite one another seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. First, before we get to the big numbers, look at the beginning of verse 29. It says that they encamped for seven days. Why seven days? It seems like if you're going to be face to face with the enemy, go ahead and jump. Get froggy. Let's go. Ain't nothing between us but opportunity and space. Let's go. But they waited seven days because they needed to honor God. They were, they were having a revival there within this, the nation of Israel. They waited and honored God for seven days. Probably in the seven days they prayed. We do well if we pray for five minutes. Come on. We do well if we pray at all. Right. The devil, the devil can't stop God from helping you, but he can stop you from praying. He can make you so busy. He can put trinkets and toys in front of you. He can even make you confident in yourself, believing that you can pull yourself up out of this. Prayer is for desperate people. God, I can't do this. 
God, this is beyond my pay grade, beyond my abilities, beyond my knowledge. Beyond my reach, God, you have to intervene and help me. For seven days, the people of Israel prayed. And what did God do? He showed up and showed out. A hundred thousand go down. Foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled. There was more than a hundred thousand. And the rest fled into the city of Aflac. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. They, 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 they ran, hightailed it, and they tried to fortify in the city. And the walls collapsed in on them. Before we go any further, I ask, I ask, have you prayed about it? It's just that simple. Have you prayed about it? You worried about it? You cried about it? You told everybody about it? But have you prayed about it? Abinadad also fled and entered into the inner chamber of the city. And the servant said to him, Behold, now we heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put on sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloths around their waists and put ropes around their heads and went out to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Abinadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother, is what Ahab said. Now, to help you understand the text, there was a time when I had a tie or two, and I would, after church, after preaching or whatever, I would take the tie and wrap it around my head like a headband, and I would just act crazy because y'all know I'm a very serious person. <laughs> but that's not what the text means here as they wrapped the ropes around their head. It went around their neck. They would wear sackcloths in their lower regions, and they would strip at the top and be bare. And they would tie the ropes around their necks because that's the perf- that, that was the parade that would take place once a, a, an army was conquered. They would lead them behind them, tied by the neck like a dog, around the neck like a collar, and drag them into the city as the parade would take place. And they would lead into the city and everybody would celebrate. So they were preparing for the defeat. They were putting the rope around their necks and they were saying, will you show mercy? But I want you to notice here the writing or what they said, what they said to Ahinadad, Ahinadad. He says that, the, that the, the king of Israel, go out to the king of Israel. Because we hear that the kings of Israel are merciful kings. And if you read your Bible, it, it actually says merciful kings. It actually has kings in lowercase. Ahab is a ruthless individual. We'll learn more about that in the next chapter. But we also know that he's known to kill people because they have a different religion than him because Jezebel uses her signet ring to, to say it in the name of the king to kill people and lay out the people and prophets of God. Just kill them. Just kill them. But we see here that Ahab is not who this text is really about. For there is a king of Israel and it's not Ahab. There is a God of Israel. He's the king of Israel, without a doubt. And I want you to notice here, Abinadad is drunk. He's probably sobering up at this point as he's retreated to the city. And he's wanting mercy from the king of Israel. And Ahab being vicious and mean and wicked, he's throwing himself at his mercy. And he'll get the mercy if you'll read on a little further. But you who are here today, You should expect that the God of Israel, the King of Israel, is more merciful than Ahab. God is more merciful. The King of of Israel is very merciful. How do I know? Because I'm standing here today. You're sitting here today. When He had every right to 
chop you down. Amen. But the Bible says, Jesus says that the axe is at the root. John the Baptist says, the axe is at the roots. He's ready to chop it down. At any moment, he should have and he could have chopped you down. But then again, then again he's merciful and he's gracious. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22-23 says, His mercies are new every morning. Thank you, God, for being merciful today. We should expect that kind of mercy from a merciful God. But we don't bank on it. We don't say, I deserve that mercy. No, that's something else. What we deserve is wrath. You're thinking something totally different. You're thinking that, uh, that you are owed mercy. No, no, you're owed justice. But God is showing grace and mercy towards us today. Amen. So we see here, now the men were watching for a sign in verse, 23, no, verse 33. And they quickly took it up and said, yes, your brother ben Hadinadad. They were listening and they were practicing divination here in the old school text, even in King James. It says they were looking for a sign. They were looking for the right word to manipulate Ahab. For we know that Ahab is very manipulative. He, he, he's manipulative all the time. Jezebel manipulates him all the time. But at this point they heard him say, uh, that, that, yeah, he's my brother. I said, yeah, yeah, he's your brother. So what they do is they bring him out. In verse 33, and then the men were watching for a sign and he quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Habinadad. Then said, Go and bring him. And Habinadad came out to him and he caused him to come up to the chariot. And Habinadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So they made a covenant and he let him go. For Hadinadad, originally his nation, not this Hadinadad, because the, the, the name of Hadinadad is, is actually a name like Pharaoh. It means king in Syria. So he said, my former predecessor actually reigned over Samaria and put bazaars there. That means that they would go in and sell and trade within the cities of the places they, they conquered. So now he's saying, that we tried to take back what was taken from us. We're trying to take back Samaria and you rebelled against us and beat, beat our army. So now, well, let's have a truce. You conquer us. It wasn't Ahab's uh, great diplomatic schemes that did this. It was God. It was God who did this. So we give God credit. And now we see in verse 35, a certain man of the sons of prophets said to his fellow in the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused him, strike him. And then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a, man, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with the bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out to the midst of the battle. Behold, a soldier turned and brought the man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, Go, so, so shall your go, judgment be. You have decided it. Then he hurried to the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. 
You'll notice this is similar whenever Nathan came to David and gave the parable of the, the sweet little lamb that was taken by the judge of the nation and killed it with the man who only had one lamb. But that man had a flock of many lambs. But he took the poor man's lamb and killed it. And David was roused in anger with wrath. He said, I want to kill that man. He deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are the man. You're the one who did this thing. What I'm trying to reiterate here is the prophet does the same thing. But I want you to think about if you heard somebody doing what you're doing. Oh, you reap what you sow? Oh, hey, they got what's coming to them. They deserve it. Many times we're much harder on people than we're harder on ourselves. Why is that? We should be harder on ourselves than we are on other people. Like I always say, I'm the biggest sinner I know. Amen. I am the biggest. If you're not the biggest sinner, you know. You're doing it wrong. Do you compare yourself to other people and say, well, I'm doing better than them? I mean, look at them. Look, they're messed up. Look at what they're doing. Look at how they're living. I am doing very good compared to that. Or do you compare yourself to Jesus? If you don't, you're, you're, you're basically taking, you're comparing yourself to, to, well, I heard Martin Luther say one time, his self-righteousness is like a fresh, fresh, fresh blanket of snow. He went out to his study and he was looking out the window and it had snowed the night before. So he looked out and he saw that the, the backyard was covered in snow. But the thing is, he had a lot of donkeys. And in the backyard was a lot of donkey dung. And it was just under that blanket of snow. That's what we do with our self-righteousness. And we know what's under that self-righteousness. We're harder on other people. Let us do well tonight to put our finger on our pulse and test ourselves against the Scriptures and not your neighbor. Not expecting their fruit. Oh, what you doing over there? I see what you got. We should be examining ourselves. Lord, am I pleasing to You? Am I honoring You with my life? Am, am I living in such a way that it honors You? I'm not, I'm not in a race with my neighbor. I'm not in a race with my spouse or my children or the preacher or the deacons. I, they're not the measuring rod. You, O oh Lord. And when we do, we, when we compare ourselves to God, it's like comparing the noonday sun to a flashlight with dead batteries. There's no comparison. And when we compare ourselves that way, we tend to less judge each other. Oh, you did what? <laughs> Man, you doing, oh, you're doing horrible. We, we tend to show more mercy, show more grace. Here we see, he says, that you got it coming to yourself. You decided it. Then he hurried to take off his bandage and he recognized him. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you let go out of the hand the man whom you had devoted to destruction, therefore your life will be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went out of his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. I know it's 8 o'clock, but I got one more point to make. We see that Ahab brought this man into his chariot and called him brother. He gave him mercy, but God had ordained and ordered him to destroy the man. Is it possible, Christian, that you do the same thing with your sins? You only have a truce with your sins. You only deal with your sins. You only juggle your sins. You only cohabitate with your sins. Instead of putting them down like God commands. You either kill sin or sin kills you. Amen. Amen. I'll finish with this last little story. It's one of my favorite stories. I used it for years. You've probably heard it. If you have, just nod and smile because you usually do. But once was a little girl named Lucy. She was a strange little girl. 
However, she went to school one day and she told her teacher, Teacher, I've got a new pet. His name's Fluffy. Okay, what kind of pet is it? Oh, he's a snake. Oh, well tell me about Fluffy. Well, every day I go home, he lays on my bed and I just feed him every day. He's sweet. Okay, Lucy, go sit down. To, to be sure, she's going to get a, a parent-teacher conference. I don't know. But after a while, the teacher keeps inquiring of, of Fluffy and Lucy. Eventually, one day, Lucy comes in and she's crying and she's upset. Well, what's wrong, Lucy? Fluffy, Fluffy quit eating. Why? Well, tell me about it. I, every day I tried to feed Fluffy, but she, she won't eat anymore. Okay, Lucy. And what's strange, teacher, is that sometimes she gets this glazed look over her eyes. And when I'm laying beside her in the bed, Fluffy will stretch out and look at me. Well, how big is Fluffy? Fluffy's about as tall as me. Oh, you fed Fluffy a lot. Yes. Well, Susie, this is what I want you to do. Okay, teacher. I want you to go home and I want you to kill Fluffy. Kill Fluffy? Why? Sally, this is the reason why. Every day when she's not eating, she's emptying out her body cavity. Making sure she's making room. And when she gets that glazed look over her eye, she's looking you up and down. And she's stretching herself out on the bed beside you because one day she's going to unhinge her jaw and swallow you whole. Go home and kill that snake. How many of us are just feeding our sins, keeping them as pets? How many of us are just coexisting with our sins instead of killing the snake? We keep it in our front pocket. We take it out once in a while. We say, well, I deserve this. It's been a rough week. I'm going to take it out and play with him some. Come on. Be killing sin or it's going to kill you. What's your sin? Anger? Bitterness? Lust? Addiction? What is your sin? Be killing sin or she's going to unhinge her jaw and ruin you. Let's pray.